Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome back to God's Planning. I'm Father Gregory Pine, joined here by Father Bonaventure Chapman. How are things going, Father Bonaventure? Going great. Uh, let's see. We're coming up on the end of your first semester of graduate studies, well, I guess of doctoral studies. That's true. Um, how are things here in Washington, D.C.? How are things at Catholic U? Well, I have to say, first off, that fall has approached and finally came here into D.C., so I love the fall. It's my favorite season. So the weather has cooled down. It's able You're able to make that 12-minute trek up to the school from Dominican Council Studies without breaking too much sweat. So I mm. enjoy, enjoy the fall. And classes, yeah, settling on papers and just getting used to the flow of being back on the other side of the lectern. So all is good. Um so for the past two years, you were a teacher, and when you're teaching, you learn things in a particular way because you have the anxiety of communicating them to people and looking like you know stuff, and now you're a student again. Is it better, worse, different, all the above? That's different. Being a teacher makes you a better student, uh, so there's benefits of that, um, but l- learning in a classroom is so different than, than teaching. Now, you only learn best by actually teaching something, I think, to be able to explain it, and that's always a good, you know, asking someone to repeat or explain something to one of the students, and then they kind of give you a blank stare, and you know they, don't, they haven't learned anything. And that's sometimes your fault, and sometimes not. Um, <laughs> but in, yeah, so it, they're just, they're different modalities, I would say, of of knowledge and uh, and teaching is better uh, but learning is is good too and you can't teach without learning first so maybe mm-hmm. it's like the sac you know the the different forms of life um the active life and contemplative life or the, maybe the different forms of like a bishop is higher than a, a pure contemplative because he makes people understand as opposed to mm. um just receiving or something but yeah it's different got it i um i was thinking about this recently with respect to like praying with scripture Sometimes I'll read scripture and I'll be in front of the tabernacle and be like, I love you, Jesus. Here we go. Staying awake, fending off distraction. Mm-hmm. And it isn't the most exalted of thoughts. Mm-hmm. But then if I have to preach that text, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's a temptation to like, okay, let me just say interesting things and get out of here. But on the other hand, it also helps you to clarify like what you've read and um, what you've meditated upon. And it helps you to sharpen your insights. I find this also to be the case just in conversation. You Like when you're when you're chatting with friends, you actually come to discover what it is that you think because mm. you haven't always enunciated it um, clearly to yourself maybe before. Yeah, something about putting <clears throat> putting thought into action by speaking it or trying to distill it. So not just, not just as you say, not just organizing it better, which is part of speaking about it, but also actually knowing what you care about because it has to have like a emphasis behind it. And you can find yourself talking about something and then saying, you know, actually, I actually don't care about this. This is kind of a waste of time. <laughs> Um, so I think, yeah, speaking about it actualizes the knowledge and also reminds you about not only what you believe, but who you are. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And prayer, I suppose, yeah, prayer would be good for that. Like if prayer is a form of, of teaching God who we are, but it's really more him teaching us who we are, but there's some kind of back and forth there. Yeah. Dig. Okay. So in the past you've taught, uh, high school and grade school and college. So you've taught all kinds of things. Um, and in the past, you've taught philosophy and some everything, science, mathematics. But another th- another thing that you have taught or incorporated in your teaching is literature. Awesome. And I know that we had a uh, we had a conversation about G.K. Chesterton and the place of literature mm-hmm. previously. But um, it's something that a lot of people enjoy. It's something that many find very delightful. So we thought that we would return to the theme. So maybe just to start with why 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 revisit it? Like we've only you know maybe 
had 15 episodes, and um, why does it merit this kind of attention? Like, this is supposed to be about philosophy and theology and prayer and really important things. So why why is literature all that important? Why the emphasis? I mean, literature is a form of knowledge that is particularly, I think, suited towards the human condition. Mm-hmm. It's a, a form that's in the story. Um, I mean, philosophy and theology, they're not necessarily propositional aspects, articulations of knowledge, but they, they, they partake of that more significantly. And for us, we, are, we dwell in time, I guess. We're, we're time, time creatures. And the Gospels make note of this. One of the Gospels, they're stories. Jesus tells stories, so Gospels have stories within stories. But fundamentally, since we're, we're finite creatures, this is the philosophical justification, I suppose, who like time, and time is a, is a story about things happening or you know, future, past, present, and we're also passionate creatures, so we're not just minds, but we have hearts and wills and all this. Um, well, literature, I think, engages all of that. It gains, engages not only the philosophical kind of ideas, pure concepts, and things that we usually care about with philosophy and theology, but also the, the existence in time, and also the passions and all of that. So it's a, it's literature. I don't want to say it's like the highest form of the human human learning experience, but I would say that you're not really a full human unless you you partake of literature and a a, a good deal. You, know, you might force yourself to. You know, it's like the saints. You can just receive infused wisdom and all this sort of thing. But some of the literature that ties up the whole human condition, relationship with God and man, ourselves, our brothers, everything, uh, in a way. That's right. I mean, I. That's how I take it. So time and passions are things that literature adds to philosophy and theology that they don't add of themselves. So they, they talk about it, but they don't have the experience of it. Does that? Do yeah. Okay. Let's let's like a, like a more practical point then, um, or a more specifically practical point for somebody who is let's say just uh, busy. So let's say a mother of three who works as a tax accountant and the time that she spends commuting to and from the city. She typically devotes to prayer and the time that she mm. spends with her family, she's, you know, just loving them as well and as generously as she knows how because, you know, she wants to be with them and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, she doesn't need literature. She's good. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's just religious to pray all the time and don't have anything else to do. And we, don't to, we don't want to pray 24 hours a day. We need literature. Yeah. Um, so maybe for like in a, in a busy life, I, th- I suppose that some people when they have the liberty to think or to set aside time for leisure, they're going to probably preference prayer time, or they, they, they kind of want to preference prayer time, reading the scripture, things like that. Um, is it, is, is literature, okay, so like sharpen the point, is literature necessary for human life or is literature um, kind of very important for human life or do you get it elsewhere? What, what would you say? I, well, I'd, I'd say it's necessary, but I, <laughs> yes. you know, um, I mean, Drive it home. Yeah, I, I think that literature is... I mean, so is is calculus necessary? Is philosophy <laughs> necessary? Is theology necessary? But theology might be, but like, so it's not at the level of theology by thinking about God's necessary for life. But basically, under theology, literature is probably the most necessary because it does incline one to know oneself better mm-hmm. and with others in a, in a mode that's heightened but not abstract. Mm-hmm. So I I tend to have a strong view of it. Um, I'm now obviously I don't actually read much literature. I, I, <laughs> I force myself every night to read literature for a half an hour or something because I, I think it's so important. But um, if I didn't have a sort of duty complex on this and understand that you'd have to do the moral, morally necessary, would I do it? I, yeah, I think I think maybe I would. There's just something, I mean, yeah, the good literature 
is is the product of genius and the product of genius that tells us who we are so yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd say it's necessary is it sufficient no I get a theology in there too but I'd, I'd, I'd give a strong necessity maybe a conditional necessity maybe maybe probably necessary <laughs> I, I, I think I imagine some people too feel like a little bit guilty um, to indulge in literature when they when there are other things or other important things that they feel that they have to attend to. So like even what? just to Where hear they going? <laughs> even just to hear that is, is is liberating. You know that this is part of um, a healthy, happy, holy human existence, and that let's say you know you only have you know two hours of free time every week. It, it's not to say that you have to devote those two hours to kneeling uh, in front of the Blessed Sacrament with your arms cruciform, repeating the Jesus Prayer. Like it's not to say that you know to be prudent means to use your time in the absolute best imaginable way and exclusively in doing that. Like mm-hmm. like you said, like human life is something that involves mind and heart. It involves emotions. It involves a body. You know, it involves uh, a life that is, you know, like there's all these relationships in which we're mutually entailed. And so it's like, it's this kind of rich network or web of interlocking things. And uh, literature speaks to the complicatedness, mm-hmm. uh, the complexity of human life. And it's also able to help you engage that in a way that's, delightful and and you can't underestimate that like it's like delightful to read mm. literature and some people they have difficulty with theology or theology uh, with philosophy or theology they kind of feel like it's a slog mm-hmm. and so literature is a way to cultivate an interior life a way yeah. to um, think along those lines that can be super fruitful and just you know well attuned to our present condition so um, then kind of passing then on to another thing thinker or another writer uh, whom we both love. Uh, last time we talked about G.K. Chesterton and the, the jury was out at the end of that conversation whether or not he was good or bad. I recall having said something like good and I recall you having said something like conditional good but yeah. mostly bad. Uh, that's okay. Um, so here I think we have uh, we have common agreement that uh, Cormac McCarthy, who is um, a contemporary novelist, still alive, uh, still writing, although I haven't seen anything from him recently, um, is is excellent. So a quick bibliography of Cormac McCarthy. A number of his novels have actually been made into uh, to movies, so I think folks are, are familiar with a couple that have come out recently. Um, but he started with a few books that not too terribly many people know called The Orchard Keeper, uh, Outer Dark, uh, Child of God, mm-hmm. and Sutri. And then the ones that people really start knowing come with the next book, Blood Meridian. And then he wrote these three novels called the, the Border Trilogy, so All the Pretty Horses, which was made into a motion picture, The Crossing, and then Cities of the Plain. And then the most famous ones are No Country for Old Men, which is made famous by the Coen Brothers movie, and then The Road, which I think was also made into a movie, though yes, I didn't it see it. Okay. Vigo Mork and Smorkinson. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, Aragon. Uh, That's it. Nailed it. And Wait, Aragon is Stryker? <laughs> Strider. Um, Whatever. So uh, the other one being the Sunset Limited, which is like a mm. two-man play. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of us here at the house have read these books, and mm. we've had conversations about them. Uh, but in your estimation, what, what is it about Cormac McCarthy that you like in particular? He's, he's a distinctive writer. Um, his, his vision is, well, I compare him to Graham Greene, I guess, um, that... There's a sparseness and an authenticity there, and a common a, a sense of the common human condition and the struggles of that condition. So he doesn't. It's not particularly pious fiction. It's 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 real kind of embodied, you know, passionate. But also has the big questions there, uh, and about what is right, what's wrong, who humans are, what they should do. Hmm. Uh, and I I kind of I think, in the way that Graham Greene, when you read Graham Greene, you get a sense that the sacraments and grace are just present no matter people can't avoid them no matter how 
unsacramental a particular story or a vision is. The sacraments are just there. I think with Graham, with uh, Cormac McCarthy, it's it's the moral life, the the moral life and the good. They're just there, no matter what the characters can can escape from them or not. So even within the kind of darker you know darker hues that he paints in with his words there's still a, a bright moral center to it although it's but it's artistically done i would say so there's something beautiful about that and his his techniques his word uh, grammatical techniques are interesting as too which i think in some books work and some don't but yeah. that's i mean that's so for me he presents uh, a dark vision but a vision that is realistic and a vision with a certain amount of hope in it mm. So a dark vision, one that's realistic with a certain amount of hope. Let's uh, return to this thought when we come back. We're going to take a short break right now. You're listening to God's Planning, and we look forward to joining you in short order. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. Okay, welcome back to God's Planning. We're talking about uh, literature again. We're talking about Cormac McCarthy, a contemporary novelist, perhaps most famous for his books, No Country for Old Men, uh, The Road, and All the Pretty Horses. And we're trying to get at what is it about this particular author that a lot of people find excellent, delightful, particularly engaging. So uh, just talking about how his novels are somehow broken open to big human questions. Mm. Now, you can do this in a way that's artful, or you can do this in a way that's inartful. So sometimes a novel can be a little bit too didactic, like, this is a novel about big human questions. And then, yeah, as a result of which... Kind of novels, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the type of thing where the themes lead, uh, and oftentimes those themes are those themes are only inelegantly dressed up in character form. And you, mm. get the, yeah, you get the impression from the outset that this isn't to be taken seriously. It's just kind of farcical and dumb. Uh, but with Cormac McCarthy... There are the, the characters themselves are very much real, and they're engaged in interactions in a plot line that is also very much real, uh, and brings you along is page turning, uh, but also that the story itself gives rise to deep human questions. Mm. Uh, you you mentioned those of an ethical order, and I would add those of you know like a religious mm. order. Not that those are to be divorced, yeah. um, but you find yourself asking like, "What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou yeah. keepest him in mind?" Uh, because you see the characters situated uh, in particularly sparse, barren, or otherwise stark settings. Like, mm-hmm. he, he chooses to set a lot of things on the Mexican border, so the Texas-Mexico border, uh, in places where there isn't a lot of brush, where you have a lot of open road, a lot of very, like, sprawling vistas, a lot of forbidding conditions. So it's like man in an environment whereby he is made vulnerable, whereby he is kind of emptied of a lot of his pretensions, and then as a result of which, like, broken open to more fundamental questions which he might not otherwise address like in the big city or in a comfortable life. Um, and so I'm thinking especially of like uh, No Country for Old Men, you know, it, it really puts you to the question of what constitutes human freedom. Um, mm-hmm. And then you, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like All the Pretty Horses, which really puts you to the question of like, what is what is most noble about the human spirit? Uh, and, and what are the great things for which he is made? Uh, so yeah, your thoughts about some of those ideas. Yeah, I, th- I think you're, you're dead on about how he how he brings out these big themes without feeling like you're being hijacked or you're you're secretly in a classroom or something. I think the beauty of of good literature is that through the story arises the naturally large questions about, for instance, freedom or about our relationship to God or about good and evil or about the problem of suffering. All these kind of things, and a a bad author 
who wants to give a good lesson will have that idea first and then we'll kind of coat that with with figures and clothes and trappings but with McCarthy you read it and it's these big questions just naturally arise so I think about No Country for Old Men and the question of, of freedom and determinism and meaning I don't the character Anton Chigurh in there he's he is this kind of force of determinism uh, and chance on the universe that's being played out but it's not unrealistic. He's a entirely believable and terrifying character, but who brings up all these issues about where we come from, how do we have a future, what does it mean to have a future, what are choices, um, chance, fortune, fate, destiny, all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's as if you could, if you ask, I mean, I'm sure someone has asked him this sort of thing. I'd be surprised if you asked him, well, what about all these issues? And he said, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. I guess that's what I was aiming. Yeah, he no, he, he does represent some of that. Like it's so natural, and yeah. that's that's what makes it human. Because in our lives, I don't think for most of us, that's why literature is beautiful. Is it's most of us, it's not like we go from living daily life, and all of a sudden we go into like deep question mode. We we live life, and things happen to us, and experiences that raise deep questions that are not then separate in some weird world that we shuttle mm -hmm. off to, and then say, okay, cool, I solved that, and then I come back to my regular life. They're integrated in this, and our life was only sensible when we can put them and integrate them together in those things. And I think his books do that really well. I think you're right about that. And I think too, uh, you know, you can kind of consult your experience of the beautiful. When you see something beautiful, you don't at least initially interpret it too terribly much. You just think like, wow, or yikes, or mm -hmm. ooh. You know, I mean, it's just the kind of thing where it appeals to you in a way that's almost intuitive. Mm -hmm. We associate uh, beauty, especially with those things we receive by sight and by sound, which are the most intellectual of our sense capacities. So it's like, on the one hand, it's sensible, so that way you can receive it immediately. But also it's intellectual, so it has this kind of resonance. It has it introduces you into a thought world, but it's something that you only kind of unpack down the road. So like when you're reading it, you're caught up with his characters, not in the sense that like you're imaginatively putting yourself there, but you're, you're swept along by the thing because the characters are so compelling mm -hmm. and the plot line is so, you know, rich. Um, and then you come to discover after the fact that these images, uh, these themes have come to like percolate in your heart, you know, or like marinate, I don't know to use weird images. Uh, and then in returning to them, you find something that you hadn't previously discovered or hadn't had expressed in just this way, but now mm -hmm. having seen it, you can. So, um, yeah, I think, no, I think that's a, that's an excellent entree and maybe just to kind of round out the scoring and conclude things, we could talk about um, just one particular element of McCarthy, which mm -hmm. really forces us to grapple with what we expect out of life. So um, <clears throat> in American literature and cinema, there's uh, a lot, I would say a lot of things end happily. Um, so there's some complexity that arises in a rising action and then a climactic, your, you know, like conflict of sorts and then a falling action, things kind of get knit back together. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, by comparison, for instance, to like Scandinavian film, we as Americans really, really, really like a happy ending. And we find it very difficult to swallow something that is in any wise to be conceived as like ultimately tragic. Yeah. Um, so right. I think I think just like let's take a brief look at that. Like mm. what about that is good? What about that is bad? Maybe what about that is Christian? What about that is unchristian? And then uh, Cormac McCarthy himself is a big fan of pretty tragic circumstances. So like what's maybe we can we can ask then like what's he doing there? Yeah. So with respect to the happy ending, like what is it that we want out of an ending? Yeah, stories are for moral teaching and they I think we we want moral ending. We want a happy ending because we want things to work out well. I mean, we have this natural desire that that all will be well in the end and that gives us buoys us up to actually go ahead with life. So it gives us hope and a and a vision. 
And so the happy ending is the resolution or music, like the chords resolving nicely. We just, there's something pleasing to that. Um, and it's something I, th and maybe if we go like deeply philosophical about this, it's something of a foretaste of the fact that we, we have a sense of, of God and, and things working out. There's or at least we're told that, I, mean, I don't know how anthropologically we want to get with this sort of thing or psychoanalytical, but there is some kind of, there's some deep desire for us. That I don't think it's just wish fulfillment, but it's a grasping incohately of of the eternal uh, peace that is God. If we want to be Augustinian about this, so I think we like that. And so our stories, they it's not just for like, kids' stories, but our just stories in general have a pedagogical effect and a moral effect. And we we don't like conf anxiety. We don't like loose ends because we don't want to be uh, in loose ends ourselves. It makes us uncomfortable, and no one wants me uncomfortable. So happy endings, I guess, make us feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. That's and that's psychologically what we're, we're, we're inclined to have because everything else around us might be crazy. So we don't want a movie that's, or a book that's crazy too. Yeah, and I think about this too in Christian terms. The, so the general, I mean, the narrative arc of Christianity is one that is redemptive. Hmm. So things started well and then <clears throat> they took a tragic turn mm -hmm. and then pedagogically God built up uh, a chosen people uh, among whom was born a savior who brings us with him, you know? So the order of the resurrection is Christ first and then and then those who belong to him. So there's the sense that like we're being kind of dragged up from the grave, we're being called into a communion which will ultimately be like redemptive, peaceful like you said, mm. uh, perfective. And I think too of like what Tolkien says in the the essay on fairy stories where he says that there's this sense of eucatastrophe, like mm -hmm. um <clears throat> it's catastrophic which is to say it's something sudden and violent but you catastrophe it's a it's a happy and sudden violence and so we look to life in expectation that something good will come of it mm. you know with the recognition that there are a lot of things about life that are sad and that uh, that's to be lamented but not ultimately to to wither our hope mm. because we have these aspirations in our heart for a thing that will resolve well yes. so when we come up against uh, an ending that is kind of ambiguous or ambivalent as to whether or not it's been resolved or in what sense it's been resolved, that's, that certainly causes us to, to grapple with what the author is about, what the text is about. So, um, yes, in McCarthy particularly, uh, there's, there's a lot of violence uh, and then there's a lot of tragedy. So do you think that on, on his end, is this, a, is this uh, a kind of act of nihilism? Is he despairing of meaning or is there meaning to be accessed in his text? And if so, like how? Yeah. And I'm, I haven't read a lot of his own reflections on this. My sense of, of reading his books is that um, he can only get at the deep meaning he wants by going through the deep tragedy that he gets there. So there are just some things that are inaccessible. So, for instance, there's, um, there was it uh, Bloy, Leon Bloy, who says that suffering opens up a space in the heart that is not otherwise open. So... And I think there are some in literature with McCarthy, I think he's aiming to open up a space to talk about a good and a deep moral resonance that's that's not just superficial, like things just work out and everyone's fine as a wedding and, and this sort of thing, but that like there, there's a real good, there's a moral truth, there's a, there's a reason for things, there's an aim, there's a purpose, there's a goodness, and you need to go really deep down to open that, to see it. So his violence, when done well, I think, is... An attempt to one actively reflect human existence for for many people and many people throughout time and in our own time, but then two to open up the space to raise deeper questions of meaning and significance that otherwise would be hidden from man in mm -hmm. a way. That's I think that's what to me he does. Um, so the why in a sense you have to go through those darker parts to be able to get to the brighter light. Yeah, and it's interesting because I mean he's not 
explicitly Christian in his prose, but it's almost like you can see a a decided, <clears throat> I don't know what you would call it exactly, but he doesn't want to make an offer of cheap grace. So I would say that he's just very even-handed in that his, you know, his, his texts are broken open to the transcendent, but he never really makes a definitive judgment as to whether or not, um, you know, redemption is to be experienced, and if so, what shape it will take. Mm-hmm. But I think he leaves that door open, and it's a door through which his characters are permitted to walk, but he doesn't want it to be something that's overly facile or cute mm-hmm. um, or, or elegant, you know? It's always something for which they need to suffer. And I think often, so I think of some of his books that are set on the uh, Mexico-Texas border. This is true of Blood Meridian, and this is true of the, the Border Trilogy, for obvious reasons. Uh, but like in Blood Meridian, which I think is one of the most stark portrayals of nihilism. Um, so the the main character, well, the main antagonist is a guy named the judge, and he's basically making a judgment on human existence. And he is surrounded by chaos, violence, licentiousness, everything abhorrent in living technicolor. Um, and, and you have it such that you, in encountering this character, have to grapple with your own presuppositions or your own fundamental commitments. <clears throat> and it's not that he's making a mockery of them, but he's putting them to the test. Like you said, it's not something to which you can like easily hold. Um, and then too, with like the border trilogy, a lot of them start by the main characters going to Mexico and then it ends with them coming back. So they, they leave and then they come home. So they depart from themselves on a kind of journey of self-discovery and then they return to themselves, often very much marked by their experiences in a way that can be really violent and terrible, uh, but transformed. Uh, in a way that is, at the very least, it represents a kind of maturation um, and perhaps something more than that. Um, so yeah, let's uh, maybe just a final thought then is uh, if meaning is to be gained or if meaning is to be accessed, uh, maybe let's just take particularly No Country for Old Men since mm-hmm. it's the one that, that many people would know the best. Yes. What do you think is, is a positive fruit of that book or how do you interpret the end and what, what does it do for you? Well, the end's, I mean, it's a complicated, tricky book, but... I get the sense that um, the, ba- the the whole story is a battle between the sheriff Ed Tom and and Anton Chigurh. It's not really between Moss and the, uh, one of the other characters there, but it's a question of whether there is fate and cosmic purpose, there's there's fate and chance, or whether there is a moral purpose and an aim that that a human can participate in some fashion or other. And part of it's the wrestling with what to make of that in its most dire circumstances and. In some ways, the Shigur character, who seems initially terrifying, is actually the easier route, this kind of principled, uh, fatalistic nihilist. Uh, and Ed Tom, the sheriff, who is trying to hold to the good and the bad and understand what the good is and its superiority, he's the, the more complicated figure in it. So the complicate we generally think of evil as being more complicated and goodness is just normal, but the complication of living the moral life and holding fast to it in the face of of despair and otherwise a meaningless universe. That's, I think, what, what it gives to me. It's a particularly modern novel in that way that you could have a universe that is devoid of purpose and is only entirely mechanistic. This isn't something the ancients would have thought about or the medievals, but it's a modern... And yet Ed Tom lives in that and grasp, grasps it and understands it and faces it, and literally in Anton Chigurh, an experience, and doesn't, in a, I think in the end, doesn't turn away from it or despair, but finds a different way of going forward, so it's the struggle of, of meaning and moral truth in a world that is, well, at least can be understood mechanistically. That's what I get from it. But um, what's your yeah no your w- take with respect yeah with respect to the same text, I really like to zoom in on how each 
Uh, so Anton Chigar, as you will discover if you read the book or watch the movie, he kills a lot of people, but he often affords those people a kind of choice. But it's a it's a very well circumscribed choice because he often offers them the option of flipping a coin, yeah. uh, which is terrible. But but <clears throat> in that you really realize the weight of human decision. Mm-hmm. You realize that your fate is in your hands, and when it's when it's contracted into such a narrow span, you realize how your otherwise dispersed life can be focused. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's nothing else but that one flip. There's nothing else but that one thought, and your whole life hangs on it. But truth be told. That's actually the case for everything that we choose. And that's not to be like melodramatic or, I don't know, overly poetic about the thing. But like, mm. it, it turns out that what we do matters. Um, and it sometimes it takes a nihilistic antagonist to cause us to grapple with that fact. Like a lot of people, you know, they don't, like it's very difficult grappling with your own mortality. But it never really comes home until somebody whom you really love dies. Yes. And then you're like, I will die. Or if you suffer an injury, which like completely compromises your body, you're like... Holy Hannah, like I'm not going to recover. That's incredible. So I think that like part of the purpose for which he deploys evil and violence in his texts is to show you in just what the good consists mm-hmm. so that you can cling all the more fastly to what remains. Mm. Speaking of what remains, for this episode, nothing remains. <laughs> so we got to wrap up. We're, uh, we're out of time here. Uh, but it's been uh, delightful to chat and uh, hope that you have enjoyed it. Uh, if you like this episode, please do share it with your friends, anyone whom you think would benefit, those uh, aficionados of Cormac McCarthy or modern literature. Uh, and we, uh, we look forward to joining you again next time on Godsplaining. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Godsplaining, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.